0: Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm thrilled to have Tad Fowler back on the podcast. Tad is the Senior Vice President, Treasurer, and Global Tax Operations at the Procter & Gamble Company. Tad, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Doug, and I appreciate you having me back. I was looking back in anticipation of this. You are on episode 26, so almost three years ago. We're uh, we're still in business here. Excellent. So before we begin, for our listeners, I want everyone to note that Tad is here for educational purposes and is not representing PwC. All views are his own. So Tad, almost 25 years ago, if you can believe that, I started as a fresh-faced associate out of the University of Missouri School of Law, working for you before you were even a partner um, here at, P- at PwC in St. Louis. So before we get into the material, and I'm really excited about listening to and learning more about what you do at, at P&G, what is the favorite fruit, food from St. Louis that you miss now that you've been in Cincinnati for almost 20 years?
1: There's so much great food from St. Louis, so many restaurants I miss, but, you know, it's got to be toasted ravioli, maybe followed by Ted Drew's custard. Okay.
0: Those are great options. Toasted ravioli for my former St. Louis guests, it's a very popular, very popular choice, and and I don't know if I would necessarily call that fancy, but uh, I, I certainly enjoy it. And as, as you well know, I lived in Cincinnati for five years, and I'm arguably a little embarrassed to admit that I, I do miss my skyline. Uh, chili, and I, I would kind of put that maybe in the same category as toasted ravioli, as far as fanciness, but deliciousness.
1: Fanciness, delicious, <laughs> you know, special to the place it comes from. Absolutely, but I'll be sure to get you some uh, some skyline chili dog right. in that, the mail soon. All right, that's
0: right because they have the canned
1: stuff. They you know, have the canned you, stuff. You yeah. don't find that here. I, no. I,
0: I prefer it in the restaurant, I think, but I'll, I'll reserve judgment on that. All right, so. Dan, really wanted to get your perspective over the podcast, really understand more about your role, both as the um, Senior VP of Tax, as well as Treasurer. And then, you know, spend a little bit of time about, because P&G has has historically been very active in in engaging with policymakers and really kind of want to understand the state of play. Um, We're recording this here in the summer of 2022 a lot of potential changes um, that that are happening there's still some discussions about build back better which we'll cover lots of discussions on pillar two that's Mm -hmm. a very very dynamic area and it's just an incredibly challenging time for all of us in the tax profession whether we're advisors or whether we're representing clients but i thought i'd start with really like i'd like to understand my listeners to understand what's a day in the life like as a head of tax
1: It really depends on the day, but I would say broadly, Doug, the the goal is to keep um, those stakeholders, most important to us, informed, okay, and try not to have any surprises, particularly as it relates to the C-suite. You know, if I think about what I do on a day-to-day basis, a lot of it's just clearing paths so that other people can get things done, right? If I think about our priorities as a tax organization, Certainly tax policy is a key priority. Achieving tax certainty is a key priority. Paying our taxes on time, you know, filing whatever reporting obligations we have on time and as best that we can is a priority. And um, obviously assisting the business in making decisions. You know, our our company is, uh, management team is measured after tax. And so they are uh, very in tune to the tax consequences and implications of decisions they're making. And uh, we want to make sure that we're there to provide the support that they need in making those decisions. So, you know, any given day, it could be something new, right? It could be all of a sudden a build back better as light is back in play. And all of a sudden that becomes a priority. It could be that um, we've got a tax controversy that has came up over the prior evening. And so that becomes a priority. So it really just kind of you know and the role I'm in depends on who needs the most amount of help and I go there and try to assist and again clear the path so that they can continue to to move things forward and get things done yeah one of the things that you message I want to unpack a, a
0: couple of those um, you had mentioned keeping the c-suite kind of up to date on various changes and then you also right. mentioned stability certainty right um, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of these later in the podcast particularly pillar two and the FTC regs but Um, how do you educate the the C-suite on some of these issues, which are just very wonky tax kind of issues? And what is the approach that you take Um, you know, for example, with Pillar 2 or even these FTC regs, you know, that are just some of this stuff like the FTC regs kind of came out of left field. Obviously, we've had a lot of runway with Pillar 2. But I mean, these are really complex issues. And these are non-tax people. So what advice do you have for other VPs of tax, tax directors on how you how you communicate that to executives?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the good news is P&G has been engaged in tax policy for a long time, I mean, even going back to the early '60s, you know, anytime there's major policy discussions underway, given it potentially impacts our competitiveness as a U.S. multinational, they're very engaged. So, just through history and a lot of discussion, a lot of education, you know, we can get C-suite um, individuals to a level of understanding that allows us to go in and, you know, at a again at a layman's level, explain the issue. Help them understand what the implications are to to PNG, maybe to other U.S. multinationals, and uh, what it might do for economic growth, etc. And um, you know, it's not to say it's always easy, but over a period of time, with enough discussion, enough education, they get it enough that you can have a, a good dialogue.
0: And then what about, you had also mentioned engaging with the business. I think, you know, a lot of the challenges I've seen, and this is hard for me as an advisor because I've never been in-house, but I see, you know, the, the clients that I work with, the taxpayers that I represent, oftentimes, you know, we'll get questions and that tax is viewed as like, no, no, you can't do that you know, we're going to create a permanent establishment. No, this isn't comis- consistent with our tax yeah. model. No. How do you balance that? Because I know P&G is a very forward organization, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. just how people are compensated. And that certainly drives a lot of behavior. But how do you kind of balance the needs of the the business with the needs of the, the tax department? And frankly, not just the needs of the tax department, but with just trying to comply and manage exposures. Yeah,
1: it's a great question. I mean, I would say our... Goal is to never say no. Our goal is to present options. Okay. And it may be that the decision the business makes is no because it doesn't make sense on an after tax basis. But I think, you know, our business appreciates and understands the work we've been doing the last call it 20 years to achieve tax certainty. And when you achieve tax certainty, that reduces risk. And when you reduce risk, that reduces the need to carry reserves for uncertainties. And that ultimately benefits the business through lower tax rates as it relates to management accounting. And so they can see the benefits of having an approach to tax, one that is um, intentional in terms of trying to be low risk. And so when presented with options is to, you know, there's, there's one way you could do this, which provides you tax certainty there's another way you can do this that is maybe uh, more uncertain and therefore carries a higher risk, maybe carries tax reserves, increases your tax rate as a business. It informs them as to what decision they want to make that best supports the company from an overall shareholder return perspective. And so. The the goal is um, not to say no. The goal is to to be very balanced and let the business make the decision. But our goal is to make sure they've got all the facts and context to do that. Got it.
0: Yeah, and I like that you started with, you know, we're all business people, right? Some of us, you know, tax accountants, tax lawyers. But as you're dealing with the business people show them the numbers like here's the potential exposure here's the after tax results right right? and i think oftentimes you know what from the business people that i work a lot of people are above the line and i i had a podcast with uh one of our consulting partners really talking about a below the line below the line mindset, like hey, EPS is is determined after tax, right? And so it's really important for for those business people to understand what the consequences are. And I think to to the other important important point, which I think you know not every organization does, but if those business people are judged after tax, that that certainly drives the right behavior as opposed to above the line mentality.
1: I, I think it certainly drives ultimately the right decision making and you know i think an important point is there are very few companies whose management teams are measured after tax right. and and the the you know the concerns i think that i've heard from other companies about having their management measured after taxes we don't want everyone out there being a tax planner okay but i think it's important to note that you know our jobs as tax advisors to the company our jobs as business um, decision makers is not always about i mean although tax is a cost just like any other cost of the business, we want to be competitive globally it 's not about minimizing the amount of tax we pay it 's about it 's about paying the right amount of tax and doing it in a way and our planning is structured in a way that provides the most amount of certainty and predictability i mean there are probably things we could do potentially to lower the rate, but that comes with uncertainty and I think we learned long ago that. Um, being in a world of uncertainty is not where we want to be because you've got to, you know, just from a pure financial accounting point of view, that requires you to carry tax reserves, requires you to carry interest on those reserves. And then when you find out that maybe you've been too conservative with respect to your concerns on risk and you release reserves, the market doesn't give you credit for those because they're non-sustainable earnings. And so this concept of building reserves for uncertainty and then releasing them, it's a no-win situation for company for our shareholders and so the goal of trying to to minimize risk uh, and be considered a low-risk taxpayer you know continues to pay dividends for us just simply from the standpoint that you know we're not needing to carry excess reserves right and um, this leads to
0: to the next question. You actually already covered a couple of the points that are in this, but P recently published your approach to tax um, that listeners can find uh, on the internet. We'll include a link in the in the show notes. But tell us a little bit about that. You've already touched on a few of the points, but also maybe the the why in addition to the what. Sure.
1: Look, I think um, there's a lot of stakeholders out there from uh, from a company tax point of view. As you know, Doug, there's been a lot of um, headlines the last 10, 15 years about companies not paying their fair share. Uh, that certainly got the interest of boards on large multinational companies. It's gotten the interest of NGOs, it's gotten the interest of investors, creditors, etc. and so we felt like um, we could do ourselves some benefit by um, getting public around what is our approach to tax. And so probably five, six years ago we, we published a two-page document that basically went through, here's Procter and Gamble's approach to tax. Okay, it articulated you know, how much taxes we, we pay, um, on, you know, kind of directly. How much do we collect and remit on behalf of governments? It went through our approach to, uh, what's our stance on, on tax policy? Okay, what, what are our goals as we engage in tax policy debates? What do we think about the arms link standard? How do we think about that? Um, we have legal entities in so-called tax havens. There are actually are consumers that live in these right. tax haven jurisdictions, <laughs> right. but but why do we have legal entities in so-called tax haven jurisdictions? Um, how do we think about transparency with, with governments that uh, where we operate? And so we felt like by getting sort of a, a minimalistic document out there, we could sort of facilitate a first line of questioning from stakeholders. And that actually proved to be pretty a pretty successful endeavor, but as we started to get feedback, and actually I do spend a lot of time discussing our approach to tax with stakeholders. We've got a lot of um, sovereign wealth funds that invest in P&G, and they wanna, you know, from an ESG lens, wanna understand how do we think about tax? And so through those discussions, we felt like we had an opportunity to improve that document. And so over the last year, we, we kind of updated it. And now we have a, a very nice, 40-page document that goes through in a fair amount of detail, um, in more detail what I just described. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think we released that a month ago and we've already had feedback from uh, the B team. We've had feedback from a couple of sovereign wealth funds that it checks the boxes that they look for in with respect to companies they're looking to invest in. And so, Feedback's been good. It takes a lot of effort to pull that together. I'm sure, but but again, it's all about trying to get stakeholders comfortable that we do the right thing. We do that as a company, and it's our approach is no different from a tax perspective.
0: All right. Well, we're we're quite a bit ways into the podcast, and and believe it or not, I think maybe I've mentioned pillar two, but we haven't really gotten into it, and I, I don't want to get too deep into it. But um, on two podcasts ago, I had Dom Megna, who's one of our partners in. Our tax report leads our tax reporting and strategy group, and he really focuses on the operational aspects of tax, which I know you—that's uh, what you do, right? A little different than the international tax technician that I am, um, but but you know, obviously, we're getting ready uh, operationally as we think about pillar two and and helping our clients. Talk a little bit about um, how you're getting ready for future global tax law changes. Pillar two obviously comes to mind, but P&G is of a size that you've got pillar one on the horizon. Mm-hmm. You've got pillar one in your in your sights as well, although that seems to be slowing, you know, losing a little bit of steam. But right. talk about like, I mean, these are really revolutionary changes and particularly, and we spent a bunch of time in that podcast talking about just the... the opening balance sheet for constituent entities, right? This right. new accounting standard that everybody's going to have to, to comply with. But talk a little bit about in your roles as, as the VP of tax, how do you get ready for, for these future changes? And what are you
1: doing? It's a great question. And you know, you asked what I do on a day-to-day basis. A lot of it is trying to think forward and what, what skill sets, what um, transformations internally do we need to be able to comply with what might be coming at us, we see it a lot in the digital space. Many right. governments around the world are moving to to digital reporting, digital compliance, and we've got to we've got to be up to date on that. If you think about a pillar two, it, it's you know, I'll go back to country by country reporting, right? Right? Okay how did how did we how did we prepare for country by country reporting? You put together a multifunctional team, tax accounting. Um, you know, even even treasury, human resources, and other stakeholders that are going to be important for you to pull the data together in a way that allows you to report C by C, um, that was probably a year endeavor for us. And by the way, we have a pretty standard business model around the globe. Wow. If anyone should have been able to do it very easily, it would have been us. And that was a, a pretty big investment of time, people, and financial resources to put the infrastructure in place to be able to do that. And there was no, ta- just to remind listeners, for country by country, there was no actual calculation
0: of tax liability, right? right. It was really just summarizing data to summarizing, share with multiple jurisdictions.
1: Summarizing data. So you think about Pillar 2 and it's, it's a very similar approach. We kicked off probably six months ago a similar multifunctional approach and as you know, Doug, there's still a lot of uncertainty around what Pillar Two will actually look like. Of course, yeah. right? The the concept to reality is a fairly long bridge, and so. Um, but but you know, we put together a multifunctional team that can take the best information we have and start to look at how are we going to comply with this, and um, and so that team's working on it. We have. Um, you know kind of what i'll call periodic updates to see where we're at what issues we're facing again the profile of our company is such as if anyone can do it we should be able to do it more easily than others just given our financial platform is consistent we've got a data lake we can pull from um and so it's it's probably not as challenging as it might be for for others but yes it's a challenge and not the least of which is is the work we're doing for not because how we may evolve to a pillar two in the U.S. may not be what the standard that is set by the OECD right. so um, or the inclusive framework. and um, But, you know, it still will get us a long way there. But you cannot underestimate the time and effort it takes to do these things. Right. All right,
0: so let's shift a little bit. I'd like to hear a little bit about your role as as treasurer. Obviously, this is the cross border tax talks podcast, but uh, um, you know it's it's very common within large multinational organizations. I've seen for for tax and treasury for those um, to lead positions to oftentimes be combined or one group to report to the other. Tell us a little bit about about you know the synergies of you being the VP of tax and the treasury, and really what you
1: do in your capacity as treasurer. Yeah. Um... I wouldn't say it's a trend, but you're right. You do see more of this happening. Um, I would say there's a tremendous amount of synergies. We've seen those synergies. Uh, for perspective, um, you know, I've, when I joined p g 16, 17 years ago, we had 240 people globally in our tax organization doing nothing but tax. We probably had, at that point, 40 or 50 people in our treasury organization doing nothing but treasury. So you're talking close to 300 people. We are down now to about 230 people throughout both organizations through synergies we have found, whether it's through prioritization, whether it's through building a cross um, skill set within the two that allows us to understand the other organization's needs faster and quicker so we can make decisions quicker.
0: And that's combined for tax and treasury. Combined for tax and
1: and treasury. And so we've made a lot of of progress in that regard just because um, I learned a long time ago, tax and treasury need to be tied to the hip. Now, I would say post-U.S. tax reform, some of those synergies have gone, okay, just simply because the ability to repatriate cash has alleviated some Treasury constraints that existed pre-U.S. tax reform. But but look, I mean, you know. And, and
0: just to make sure that the listeners understand that, because before TCJA, with our your deferral system, that bringing cash back to the U.S. could mean a 35% plus state Tax cost, exactly. as opposed to uh, where we've got all this PTAP as a result of guilty, and right. then the two forty five cap A DRD kind of nine fifty six has been relaxed on upstream loans. So it does certainly make sense that you're going you're not gonna maybe step on some of those landmines post tcga that you could before.
1: No, but there are new landmines that were created with TCGA, That's for but, sure. But I would say, Doug, it's look. My number one job as a treasurer is make sure we have liquidity wherever in the world we need it, whenever we need it and you know that involves wanting to and needing to you know move money where we're cash rich to places where we're cash poor and even with sort of the relaxation of some of the u.s tax implications of that there's still a lot of foreign tax implications of that and so um that synergy still exists and so i would say um you know my number one job as treasurer make sure we're liquid um, and make sure that you know, we can meet our uh, capital allocation needs, broadly defined as our shareholders are getting the return that they want. So making sure we've got the money, again, where we need it, particularly the United States mm-hmm. to do uh, dividends, for example, and, uh, and redeploy those earnings wherever we might need it, wherever we're trying to, to grow the business. And as you know, and as you've learned over the course of your career, it, it's hard to think about moving money investing money, borrowing money, lending money, capital infusing without without running it through the tax lens. And so that's where a lot of those synergies come into play. Sure.
0: You had mentioned as part of both of those discussions in your role of taxes, role
1: of treasury, kind of
0: technology, and you had mentioned the data lake and then you that is it's pretty unusual. One instance of SAP, that right. you've got the entire organization which certainly I think a lot of our listeners would be very, very envious of. Um, But how has technology changed? I mean, I just think about when we started practicing together 25 years ago, um, wow, uh, a lot has changed. I, do you remember when the BlackBerry came out and how excited I was of uh, about the you
1: BlackBerry? Know you know, Doug, you always had the newest and best technology. And you had the BlackBerry, and I'm like, that thing is a life changer, and I got one as quick right. as I could. And it really was a life changer. You know, it's interesting. I was having this discussion actually a couple of nights ago with my youngest son, who's getting married in three weeks mm-hmm. but is uh, is in the profession, and I was talking about my first few years out of school and what I was doing. Right, I started my career at, at KPMG, and my first two years were spent doing tax returns. Right, you, you, they would have a, a, a um, closet full of tax returns. You'd have a four-hour budget. You'd go grab one, and from January through April, we just sat there and cranked out fifty, sixty hours worth of uh, a week of individual tax returns. And it was a great way to learn. Um, and it was a great way to keep chargeable. And, um, and and I was thinking about it, that doesn't exist today. Right. right. I mean, just that simple task of preparing tax returns has been largely automated. I think about where we've gotten some of the productivity in our P&G tax group is we've outsourced um, a majority of our tax compliance to our shared services centers. We have shared services in Costa Rica, the Philippines, and the United Kingdom. And we've largely outsourced our compliance to them. And they know how to leverage technology. They know how to access the data. They know how to manipulate it. And they know how to set up a process to to make these things fairly routine. And that's created tremendous productivity for us. And what that allows us to do is to is to not focus on the routine and focus on the non-routine. And I think um, that trend will not end. I mean, productivity is is key to our ability to continue to deal with the the more complexity that's thrown at us from the outside world, even internally. And so we need time and we need the skill sets to be able to to deal with that. And the only way we get there is through leveraging technology to take the routine out of our day-to-day job. I mean, and it's, I think all of us in the industry, whether you're an advisor, a
0: service provider, or, you know, a taxpayer, that that's, that's the name of the game. We're certainly doing the same thing and have similar strategies. All right, so I want to shift gears here to talk about um, how P and your views on engaging with policymakers. And you've mentioned this earlier in the podcast. You all have been very forward thinking and transparent with various policymakers, as opposed you know, with, with respect to, to your strategies. Um, but I, I want to cover both global policy as well as U.S. policy. Maybe we'll start with global policy, just because you know, Pillar Two is, is on the front of my mind. We don't necessarily need to limit it to Pillar Two, but what is P&G's approach and your approach with trying to engage in policymakers from a global perspective? I think
1: um, it's a key priority, okay? And, you know, our, our platform for policy doesn't really waver, right? It's not necessarily about what's best for P&G. We, we like policy that is pro-growth. We like policy that makes complying with the tax system simpler, um, we like policy that doesn't disadvantage. Uh, if I think about U.S. tax policy, U.S. multinationals from our from our competition. And so, you know, how you take that broad-based approach and apply it depends on what's going on at on any given point in time. But, um, you know, fortunately, I work for a company that's willing to invest in the resources necessary to spend time with global policymakers. We, uh, you know, we've probably been engaged in, um, the Pillar One, Pillar Two projects, since its inception, when it was just thought of as a uh, taxation of digitalized like BEPS, companies, yeah. right? And but but realizing it had the opportunity to transform itself into something larger and broader, we got engaged very early. And part of that engagement was nothing more than, yeah, you know, we're PNG. This is why we're interested in this particular policy matter. Um, here's what's important to us from a policy perspective. Here's why we think this might become larger than what you're anticipating. And and if it does, here's here's some ways maybe that, that might be worth uh, thinking about it from a policy perspective. So a lot of it was just education about what we do, why we care about it. Um, what's were, our business model, et cetera. And that, that then provides a relationship and a platform with policymakers we can then go back and leverage. Well, yeah. And, and I think about back to those, you know, the original BEPS
0: 1.0, right? And and the the digital initiative. And the first thing that came to come, came to mind then was, well, you guys aren't digital. You're a consumer products company, right? right. Like you make stuff and sell stuff to, to customers. It's, this is not like some of the big tech
1: companies. It's the first question we would get from people. Why do you care about this project? Well, we care about it because now we're in scope of pillar one. Right. Right. Because you could see it potentially evolving. And so, um, you know, and look, all multinationals are digital in some capacity. Of course. Right. Or you don't survive. Right. Right. And so um, that's, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate, again, to, to work with with leaders who have the vision to see these things potentially happening. So they invest in getting us engaged.
0: Yeah. I had mentioned that early version of BEPS and uh, I want to just kind of double click on that. How has that changed? Because that was about 2014, I think. It's been a long yep. eight years, right? It's just, a, it's, un, it's unbelievable the journey that, that we've all been on. But how has that impacted, just really starting with that initial Beps impacted, you know, P and G's ability to do tax
1: planning and the way you think about tax planning in general? Well, if you think about it, um, it's had a tremendous impact, and you can see the policy that's been adopted in many countries around the world, not uh, excluding, I mean, including the United right. States, right? I mean, you've got um, guilty, right? You've got B, you've got um interest limitations, right. interest deduction limitations. And so um we've seen the result of BEPS now implement in policy, and I can say it's had a dramatic impact on on planning um base erosion and profit shifting or or making that more difficult. Not that we were in the business of that. Again, sure. that doesn't necessarily lend itself to our tax certainty agenda. Okay. But but I do think things that were pretty bread and butter back in the day um, have become much more difficult, if not impossible, to do. So I think the whole perspective of tax planning has changed. Um, I think I think it's accomplished its objective. I think it's still too early to, for people to see that. And it is kind of difficult when you've had other very large policy changes. For example, the U.S. with the rate reduction, it's hard to compare what the world looked like ten years ago right. to today when you've had such fundamental changes in even just the rate. And so, but I, I can tell you just personally. Um, Yeah, it's the things that we would have done 20 years ago Fifteen years ago, ten years ago, that would have been thought of as just bread and butter. Right. are very difficult to get done. Yeah, it's interesting to me, and I've made this point on the podcast
0: before that it, it doesn't seem like policymakers really gave enough runway to see, you know, the interest limitation rules, the CFC rules, the anti-hybrid rules, the 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 beat, for example, that we, that policymakers didn't really give a, a lot of time to right. see. Did those changes? Really impact and change taxpayer behavior, and then they're they're layering on on pillar two. And I absolutely agree with you from from an advisor's perspective that you know a lot has changed as a result of what I refer to as BEPS 1.0, and now BEPS 2.0 is is, is coming on top of that.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Doug. I think you know BEPS did a good job of the base erosion and profit shifting agenda they were going after. What it didn't address is. Taxing rights, yeah. right, an allocation of the base, which is really what Pillar One right. is about, and so that um, it's not surprising that we've we've you know migrated to that policy discussion, but but I do think BEPS, I, I give credit where credit is due, it, it largely did the job I think it set out to do. All right, so let's let's shift to U.S.
0: policy because we actually started with with global policy. Um, Talk a little bit about how you engage with U.S. policymakers. And obviously, here in the U.S., we have a much, you know, arguably more complex system of dealing with Treasury and the IRS and then Congress and the executive branch. Talk a little bit about P&G's
1: approach to, to U.S. policy. Yeah, I don't know that it's a lot different than global policy. I think it's about establishing relationships. It's about establishing credibility as being a good and fair uh, taxpayer and um, advisor of policy. Again, it's not always about, geez, this is what's best for P&G. That's why we support it. This is, you know, we, again, we like, we like pro-growth tax policy. Mm-hmm. We like simple tax compliance. Um, and we want U.S. multinationals to be on a, a level playing field from a competitiveness standpoint. And so that platform, again, then defines Um, Where we spend our time and how we spend our time and and how we approach policy, depending on what's what's hot in at the particular point in time in Washington. So but again, it's 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 about um, establishing relationships, establishing credibility and um, and also being choiceful about where we spend our time. There's only so much political capital. A company has, and, and we've got to use it when it's when it's needed. But importantly, look, we just want to make sure that no matter what the U.S. does from a policy perspective, it doesn't disadvantage U.S. multinationals in the global playing field. All right, so I want to unpack. I want to unpack that a little bit, specifically in the context of the foreign
0: tax credit regulations okay. um, that that recently came out, the final regulations, and we've dedicated a whole bunch of airtime to to the foreign tax credit rules, but. How many countries does P&G operate in? I mean, you've got consumers. It's like, I mean, what, there's 190 or something total
1: countries. You probably operate in most of them. Right? I, I would say product is sold in most of okay. them. You know, we have on-the-ground operations and I don't know, the last count, 80 or 90 countries okay. in the world. But, yeah, it's a very large footprint. That, that's a huge footprint. And then we think about these new foreign tax credit rules,
0: which are effectively to determine what's creditable. And you talked about competitiveness and being on a lay- level playing field, not just with other U.S. multinationals, but foreign-based multinationals. And then we have this set of rules which first of all from a compliance perspective means that you know the the each withholding tax and every income tax needs to be analyzed for 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 creditability purposes. But how do you how do you feel about or how do you you know feel about the foreign tax credit rules and then how have how, how can taxpayers or what can taxpayers do to try to engage with whether it's treasury or congress to 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 try to Share kind of those those challenges that that yeah. it presents for us MNCs. I think you know
1: it is challenging. I mean, the foreign tax credit area, in a funny way, was an area that you know there's been a fair amount of predictability and certainty, and particularly as it relates to whether taxes are credible or not, for a long time. So for us, um, it's it's a very important issue. I mean, obviously. Um, with with respect to guilty you know all of our intellectual properties owned in the united states so we have a large royalty flow that comes back that is subject to withholding we provide a tremendous amount of services in the united states for our affiliates around the world so we have a lot of intercompany charges that we're billing out that that is bringing uh, earnings and um, cash back into the united states but a lot of that is subject to withholding and so Um, It's potentially a a fairly significant cost to P&G, which, again, our foreign competition doesn't have. And so our engagement's really centered around the competitiveness aspect of the regulations, the uncertainty aspect of the regulations. And although I have a fair amount of hope that we will progress in a way that will eliminate some of that uncertainty, I do think there's um, there will still be uncertainty, and I think there'll be some policy issues left. I feel mm-hmm. less confident right now on the services side, and um, you know, I think that I think from a policy perspective, the last thing I would think we'd want um, tax policy to do is disincentivize high-paying jobs in the United States that are servicing um, non-U.S. affiliates or non-U.S. businesses and and these regulations potentially do that, and so um, a lot of our discussion with policymakers is: was this the intent? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the intent? And how do we, you know, how do we get these regulations to a place that alleviate a lot of those policy and uncertainty concerns? And I think policymakers are beginning to hear that. I think the Treasury Department is beginning to hear that. Again, I'm optimistic we'll we'll make some progress. I'm not sure we'll get all the way to where we want to get. But yeah, that's an important issue, not just for us, but for, for many taxpayers. Absolutely.
0: All right. So I want to shift then to, a, to our last topic here is that um, we had mentioned you worked in public accounting before you uh, took the job at P&G over 17 years ago at this point. It's still hard for me to, to say that, Tad. Um, but I, I'd love your advice and insight. And now that you've been on the other side,
1: what's important to you in an advisor? You know, I always use the term trusted advisor, and I know that term gets thrown around a lot, and so what do I mean by that? I think, you know, the advisors that that I rely upon know P&G. They know our facts. They know our risk profile, right? Mm-hmm. They, they understand our risk appetite or lack of risk appetite, as the case may be. Um, they're there when we need them, okay? I, it's not that I expect if I need to get a hold of you, Doug, you're going to call me back in five minutes, but... But I, I, my advisors know that when we call and it's an important issue that it's, it is important and they're gonna get back with us timely. And, and they're, gonna, they're, they're gonna deliver what they say they're gonna deliver when they're gonna deliver it with excellence. And um, I think when you put those things together, that sort of defines for me broadly a, a trusted advisor. And, and that relationship takes time to develop, just like any relationship, sure. right? It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a period of experience Um, It takes a period of sometimes trial and tribulations, but um, we've got a number of those uh, advisors around the world, and I'd say that is sort of how I would describe them. Excellent. So what about, you know, we've all been dealing with, Tad, the the great resignation,
0: right? Just a lot of turnover, and I think that's happened in industry as well as in public accounting and the law firms. I mean, just everywhere. And frankly, I think what a lot of us have learned, it's really been a carousel. Like, I think there's been a few that have gotten out of the profession, but just a lot of, of seats being changed, a lot of musical chairs, if you will. Um, as you are looking to fill spots within PG and in your tax department specifically, but also in your, your role as Treasury. What are important skill sets? What are you looking for when you're trying to hire somebody, whether they ca- are coming from, you know, one of the accounting firms or law firms, or frankly even from a competitor, or, or frankly some other industry that may not have anything to do with consumer
1: products? That's yeah, a great question, and I, obviously it depends on what role we're looking to fill. But generally, you know, you're looking for individuals that first and foremost are a good culture fit. I mean, you've got to be a culture fit at where you're at, or it's not. That's not a winning proposition. For you or um, your employer or company that you're working for. So I, I think culture fits important. I think a passion for developing and continuing to develop your skills as well as skills of others is important. I think um, as you continue to progress in a career and have more influence, strong communication skills are important. And of course, we're a technical profession, so a, a technical skill set in some capacity that we can leverage is important, but I think we have the ability to, to, you know, help people get to where they want to get from a, from a technical perspective, but you obviously want to be passionate about continuing to build that skill. So um, that's kind of a base criteria. We're always looking for diversity in terms of experiences and skill sets. And I think that the more people we can, you know, our tax organization's interesting. It's a, it's a very, um, it's a mix of backgrounds, right? We've got people that started their career in consulting or law firms that are now in-house. We've got people that started their career in outside of tax within P&G, in aligned finance role that are now part of the organization. Uh, we've got people that um, were with a different uh, company that we've brought in-house. And so that diversity of thinking and experiences pays dividends. And so, yeah, I, I think I think those are kind of what I'd call the core skill sets we'd like to see in someone before we uh, make them an offer to come in-house.
0: Well, Tad, this has been
1: a great discussion.
0: I, I, when I sit down with somebody like you, I do wonder if we should think about the, I should think about the three-hour podcast format. I'm not sure that necessarily my listeners uh, agree with that. <laughs> and in fact, I heard from a recent listener that explained that he doesn't listen as much to the podcast. He doesn't commute anymore, right? Uh, because apparently this was, you know, people would listen to this during their commute. But this was a fascinating discussion. It's great to have you back on almost three years and hopefully it won't be another three years. But sharing your experiences in industry and from that perspective is, is enlightening because we, we get a lot of perspective from the advisor side. So I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate it, Doug. Thank you. Okay. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Tad Fowler, Senior Vice President of Treasury and Tax at the Procter & Gamble Company for joining me on this podcast. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast.